Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told him this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he had come to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property and prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I was aiming to break the Guinness World Record with the longest Bible reading in Jefferson Avenue history. I'm not sure if we did it, but we came close. Um, we all have expectations. We all fear expectations. We all relish, relish expectations. We all uh, wonder about things in our expectations. Um, about seven years ago, uh, Merith and I went on our first date together. It's about two weeks will be our seven-year anniversary. December 5th, yes, I do remember. Um, when you're going on a first date, uh, you have, well, you kind of want to have expectations, but you're not really sure how it's all going to play out. I mean, is it going to be, you know, easy conversation back and forth? Will we enjoy it? Will they, uh, you know, have this awkward silence? I mean, all these different expectations. And if you really are thinking about it, um, our expectations really shape the way we view the future. Not just the future, but also the present. You see, when you expect 
something to go poorly, do you just walk up to that situation with joy or, yes, I get to go do this right now? Or do you rather, maybe because of that expectation of fear of something not going well, you kind of drag your feet. You don't want to get to it. Um, Maybe it's that home repair on your house. You're just not really sure how it's going to work, so you never quite get to that home repair. I want to submit to you that I think rather you are a Christian or a non-Christian, our expectations about God shape the way we respond to God. And in our passage today, I want us to see the expectations that Jesus is setting out for both stubborn, rebellious sinners and humble sinners. The main point for today is God overwhelmingly delights in saving humble sinners. Again, God overwhelmingly delights in saving humble sinners. We'll see this in his pursuit of them, in his affections for them, and in his warnings to them. So in his pursuit of them, in his affections for them, and in his warnings to them. So first, in his pursuit of them. Now, before we can really dive into how Jesus was pursuing uh, humbled sinners, we kind of have to step back and think about Luke as a whole. Uh, Jesus is in the middle of his ministry. He's on his way to Jerusalem to accomplish his mission, to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. And Jesus has been teaching about himself and the kingdom of God. You know, there's a lot of things he, he's been saying. You know, you can think back to the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6, where he's talking about our need to forgive one another and our need for forgiveness and where real heart change happen, happens. You could go to uh, Luke 13.3, where he tells us that we need to repent and going on that we need to bear fruit with repentance. He talks about how the gate into the kingdom is narrow. It's not like something you just stumble into, but it's something that you purposely have to walk through. He's healing people. He's telling the good news about himself, and he's expressing his desire to forgive. Even in chapter 14, verse 11, he is starting to frame the expectations we need to have what it looks like to come to Jesus. If you look down in Luke 14, 11, so just a little bit before our passage, we see Jesus saying this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everybody who humbles himself will be exalted. And it goes on then to talk about the cost of discipleship. That's what uh, Brandon preached on last week, that we are to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, that we will be bearing our cross daily. So with all of this teaching on repentance and forgiveness and humility and bearing the cross, he warns them, he calls them to repent. And he shows them love and offers forgiveness. And then he says these incredibly sobering words at the end of chapter 14 after the cost of discipleship. Look down in verse 34. Salt is good, but if the salt, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus is saying, if you do not humble yourself, Repent and believe in me. Carry your cross. Listen, your religious faith, your profession, your worldview is worthless. You know, Jesus is not exactly being right here, this warm, fuzzy, everybody come, love me kind of God. But he's really saying, listen, if you don't take this seriously, you will be lost. And what is interesting, the very next verse, the first verse of our passage today, is that we see tax collectors and sinners 
the worst of the worst in their society, drawing near to Jesus, even after all of this. Look down at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. There was something that the tax collectors and sinners were seeing. They were drawing near. There's something that I, they were saying to themselves, something I need that this Jesus is offering. You know, what the tax collectors and the sinners are doing here, they are humbling themselves. They are seeing their need for Jesus. Let's just ask ourselves real quick. Do you feel Do we feel our need for God every single day? And I'm not just talking about, yeah, we're we're going through hard times, this broke, we need this fixed, this is stressing, this relationship is hurting. I mean, those are real and legitimate, but do you feel your need for God's empowering spirit desperately? Truly humble people are desperate for God. And prideful people are not. Look down at verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes, so the religious rulers, the smart ones of the day, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. People come to Jesus And the righteous, air quotation marks, are complaining about it. Now, needless to say, this kind of rubs Jesus the wrong way. You see, Jesus delights in humble sinners who see their need for him. And we're going to see this through three parables. He says them back to back to back, succinctly. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And really, they're all saying the same thing just from different angles. So we're not going to be going verse by verse through them, but more like um, pulling things out of them and seeing put together. So look down in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after that, that, that one that is lost until he finds it. Right here, Jesus is pointing out both to the sinners and tax collectors who are listening in and to the prideful religious people who are accusing Jesus. He's pointing them out that I and the God that pursues. I'm the God that goes after sinners. You know, uh, if you know me, and you can ask Meredith for a testimony of this, I'm really good at losing stuff. I lose my phone, I lose my wallet, I lose my keys, I lose my headphones um, all the time. Actually, this week, I found my headphones as they tumble out of the dryer. Um, so I'm really good at losing things. And I'm, because of that, I'm always searching for things. And when we search for things, uh, we're doing it because we value it. Like, if I didn't value the contents of my wallet, I really wouldn't look for it. But I, I value it, so I look for it. See, Jesus values broken people. So he seeks them out. Jesus here in the other two parables is showing that I value sinners and don't ever, ever lose sight of that. Wherever you see devaluing of people, know this Christ's teaching is being ignored. Actually, what's interesting, I was reading um, some books recently on first century context, or first, second, third century context with Christianity, and some of the pagan philosophers 
that were writing against or ridiculing um, Christianity is that they saw Christianity says that's too human focused because their gods use and abuse people. Our God comes to save people, showing that he values people. There's times I just wish that my own heart was knitted to this. More. Christ's heart, who he is at his core, he, by words, emotions, and action, seeks and saves the lost. And look down um, after uh, the the shepherd finds the sheep. Look down in verse 5 and how he responds to the sheep. And when he has found it, the lost, stupid, wayward sheep, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. In rejoicing. He doesn't say, oh, where have you been? Grabs it by the scruff of the collar and drags it back to the flock. He lays it on his shoulders. He cares for it. He knows that sheep is probably tired out and not able to move. And he tenderly, lovingly puts that sheep on his shoulder and rejoices. Remember, Jesus is showing the naysayers the righteous people of his day, how he views sinners who are drawing to him. He views them with tender love. He is not idly standing by or with cross arms demanding that these lost wayward sinners earn his trust. He seeks them out. And you can see this supremely in the incarnation, the idea that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus laid aside his divine glory, put on flesh, and humbly served and loved and sought out the lost. Jesus is the God that comes down from the mountain to bring us up to the mountain. And also, in the parable of the lost coin, we see him carefully and meticulously searching for the loss. If you look down in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? Not only is God a pursuing God, he's a relentless God. One of our, most, one of our dear daughters, uh, we have a joke in our house, that she has no relent. Uh, She just doesn't give up. If you've been in the nursery, you know which daughter I'm talking about. Um, She just keeps on going after something. You like, no, don't grab the plug and lick on it. Just come over here. No, stop, stop. Like that kind of pursuing, that's God. It's not like God has a checklist and says, all right, I'm going to give... Bob over there, 10 chances. Oh, didn't, didn't come to me. That nah, didn't come to me. I'll come back later. Okay, didn't come this time. Didn't come this time. Oh, 10 chances are up. I'm moving on. That is not God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you sometimes feel like your chances have run out with Jesus? God is not so easily shaken. God is the pursuing God. And it's very different from this world. Uh, Right now we kind of live in this weird place where we have certain Christian values, but they've kind of been morphed and twisted by secular values and they come together. So there's this pervasive um, pursuit of justice in our society, and that's great. That's godly. That is from God. But then it's twisted and there's no mercy in that pursuit of justice. So what this may look like is if the world or the general culture 
sees a nonconformer, they ridicule, they persecute, they make fun of, they cancel. And before that nonconformer can be brought back into the family of sorts, they must be publicly shamed, ridiculed, the sufficient amount before just maybe their repentance is believed. Jesus is not like this. In our lowest, prideful, self-centered moments, in our doubts, in our sins, in our wayward rebellion, Jesus is seeking us out. You know, the skeptics today and maybe in the past would be saying, screaming, where is God? If God is so powerful, why is he so hidden from me? He won't show himself from me. You know, honestly, that brings up a good question. Why does God feel so far and distant and hidden at times? Why was the religious people of Jesus' day rejecting their shepherd and the sinners, the worst of the worst, was coming to Jesus? Why do some see God and then say, God, save me, while others say, God's not real, God's evil? Why does God, why does God seem far from all people at times? Now, there's, uh, there's bunches of reasons we can give, but I think there's two basic ones. First, we have to understand that God is the Father, eternally the Father. That means that he is loving he is, shows the father, uh, compassion of a father. Think of Psalm 103. That means if God is feeling far from us, just maybe a loving God has a good reason for it. And he's going to turn it to our good. Maybe another reason, and I think what Jesus is getting at more in our passage is, maybe the reason God feels so far to us is because possibly, just maybe, we are more like the prodigal son than we realize. Ask yourself, what changed in the prodigal son? In the last parable, Jesus talks about this prodigal son. He is an evil, self-centered man who treated his father like trash. Look down at verse 12. Well, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of, my, of the of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. By the way, this is the worst of the worst of the worst thing you could do as a Jewish person. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. This world promises so much, but it can deliver on none of it. You know, Jesus paints a picture of a guy who deserves this fate. He was not a good son. And I would contend to you that as Jesus stopped right there in the parable the Pharisees and the scribes would rejoice over the demise of the evil son. But you know who wouldn't rejoice? The tax collectors and sinners. Why? 
because they are starting to see that they are evil. They are broken that they, and they need a savior. They need their prideful, self-centered pursuits forgiven. And by faith, they knew what Jesus said was true. The humble would be exalted. However, the prideful, self-righteous people could not see or understand that Jesus is a righteous God. Yet the sinners who knew that they had no righteousness to speak of saw God as a loving God. This is what changed for the prodigal son, if you look down in verse 17. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, when he's like, oh, all my pursuits are not good. This kind of reminds me of Daniel chapter 4, where there's this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who just like pridefully says, look at this great kingdom. And God says, oh, guess what? Your pride is about to bring you low. He takes his sanity away. The guy lives like an animal for a while. And then God brings back his sanity. And it says that when his sanity returns, he praises God because he realized, listen, I am nothing compared to God. The prodigal son realized he was nothing, that his prideful pursuits were that, self-centered, and brought no life. So when the prodigal son realized that his life was going to hell, that his desires left him dead in destruction, he turned back home. And in humility, he saw he was broken and he was in need. At the beginning of the parable, he was demanding from his father all that he promised Tim to have and rejected any form of relationship with his father. He took his father for something to be used and then discarded. Dad, I want your money, but I sure as heck don't want you. Have we ever said something like that in our hearts, in our actions? Have we said, God, I'll take your creation and enjoy that for some time. But you, on the other hand, if you're not sure, listen to this passage from Isaiah 53, verse 6, which is in the Old Testament, prophesying about Jesus. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned Everyone to his own way. Everybody listening to Jesus in our passage, everybody that's in here, we go after our own way. We make our own kingdom. We, we erect our own gods. We serve those, whether that be money, whether that be status, whether that be some kind of um, complex uh, form of loving uh, comfort or security. We have all turned from God. And the prodigal son realized that he had nothing left. He had nothing left. But the religious leaders were doggedly holding on to their pride. The prodigal son, he had no pride left to hold on to, and he realized his only hope was to cast himself on the father. He could no longer make demands of his father, but only throw him at himself at the mercy of the father. You know, sometimes one of the ways God pursues us is that he wrings out all of that resistant, stubborn pride through hard circumstances. Sometimes the hardest times is the most greatest, most beautiful, loving gift the Father gives to us. Because he uses that to see to the end of ourselves and show us, listen, depend on me. So the prodigal son, he crafts this long plea deal. I know all of us in here have, at times, if we had parents, crafted a plea deal. Hey, Dad, I know I crashed your car into the garage, but listen, I will do this, this, and this. Just please let me keep driving because I want to see my friends, okay? Uh, we have a situation here where this uh, prodigal son, 
crafts this long plea deal, and then we just see these sobering words at verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired servant. The son, the prodigal son, has hit rock bottom. But beloved, our our God overly delights, overwhelmingly delights in saving humble sinners. When sinners come broken over their sins to a loving father, God comes running because he has already set his affections on the sinner. And the pursuing God has deep affections towards sinners. And this is our second point. In his affections, we'll look in verse 20. This one, this point's a good bit shorter. Verse 20, and he arose, prodigal son, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is what Jesus wants us to see. Jesus is telling both the religious leaders, the sinners, and us in here, you want to know what I'm like? You want to know what kind of expectations you, need, you should have when you come to me in humble repentance? I am the God of compassion. I deeply care and have godly, loving pity on people, my enemy. That is who God is. God, the transcendent, almighty, eternal, all-knowing, never-changing, righteous, holy God cares for sinners. God overly, I'm sorry, overwhelmingly delights in saving humble sinners and giving mercy. He shows empathy and deep desire for the lost to be found. And he never, ever compromises on his justice and righteousness, but rather lines it up to save sinners. When a humble, repentant sinner encounters God, he encounters a God that wants him. He, she encounters a God that wants her. When we come to God in repentance, we find a God that wants us. God is not constrained by some outside forces forcing him to love people. No, he is freely loving and sacrificially loving us, his children. And this is really good news for really bad people. Because we can't like do a bunch of bad stuff to make God stop pursuing us. God pursues us in his love. And in verse 21, the son begins to offer this plea deal. He's like, Dad, I got this long plea deal. Just hear hear me out. I'm not good. I'm not worthy. What the beautiful thing is, Daddy's not even caring about the plea deal. He delights that his son is back. Father, in verse 21, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on him, his hand and shoes on his feet. The sinner has been restored. It goes from pursuit to delight. That is is the kind of God that is calling you today, wherever you're at in your life. God is a God of deep compassion and empathy. He loves to declare people justified. This is who Jesus is. This is why the sinners and the tax collectors were drawing near to him. They felt and saw their need for forgiveness and saw Christ's love for them. 
In all three parables, when the lost thing was found, was eye-rolling the next thing? Was indifference the next thing? Was, well, it's about time the next thing? No. It says that joy erupted in heaven. If you are a wayward, lost Christian, you knew Jesus at some time, but you just kind of stumbled off that path. Or those who are far away and are like, I'm not a Christian. Or those who are a Christian. Listen. God's grace and God's love, he enjoys the repentant believer. He relishes, he delights, he welcomes them in, and he does so much by the proof of what he did with his son. If you look back uh, on the screen in Isaiah 53, 6, we'll read the full verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Jesus came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. He willingly laid down his life so we can have life. He bore our punishment so we would not have to. And with this amazing news, who wouldn't come to Jesus? Why why not everybody come to Jesus? Well, the reason is very, very, very simple. And it happens very, very easily. We have seen God overwhelmingly delights in saving humble sinners. And now he lastly shows a warning to them. This is our last point. And his warning to them. Now remember the context of the whole passage. There's tax collectors, and they were devouring Israel's property. There were sinners like prostitutes who were the outcasts of society and they were drawing near to hear Jesus' teaching and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and complaining about Jesus associating with these lowlifes. And we see that and we're like, oh my gosh, that is blatantly prideful. That is blatantly stuck up. I would submit to you that's probably because of 2,000 years of Christian influence that that's the general reason why people see that. But listen, these religious leaders were not grumbling because they set out to be stuck up. They were grumbling, and this is really important, because their deeply held religious beliefs dictated that they could not eat with anybody who was morally deficient or unclean and were not allowed in the temple. We all have deeply held beliefs that affect the way we see the world. And rather you're a first century uh, religious bigot whose particular religious beliefs make you ostracize people or you're a 21st century person who doesn't, quote, believe in anything but that our internal reality or the, the way we feel defines our, um, uh, defines who we are. We are all enslaved to the same thing, Pride. The person who says, my feelings trump everything, is enslaved to their own opinions. And the the religious bigot in the first century says, my righteousness, air quotation marks, gets me in favor with God. You know what both of these worldviews have in common? They reject the need for repentance. They reject the need for repentance. And repentance is turning away from our sins and away from our wrong belief systems. In the first parable, there were the 99 sheep that Jesus left in verses, I'm sorry, that the shepherd left in verses 4 through 7. And what's interesting, if you look in verse 7, we start to see maybe these 99 sheep are not Christians. This, uh, this parable is also mentioned in Matthew 18. Uh, if you want to go read that sometime, I think there, I, that's talking about Christians, but this case, when Jesus is used in this parable, in this particular circumstance, I don't think he's talking about 99 ch- children of God. And I think we see this in the text. Look down in verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Listen, I ain't never met no righteous person that needed to not repent. I think this is an ironic statement from Jesus to point something out kind of poignantly. No matter who you think you are, if you do not think you need repentance, you are really, really far from the kingdom of God. See, the implication is God delights over repentant lost people, but he does not delight over prideful ones. Let that sink in. And then recall to your mind what he said about the salt in just a few verses earlier in chapter 14. He said, if, if there's no saltiness in the salt, it's not worth anything. What we see is at the end of this last parable is a prideful brother who is angry with his father for showing love to his little brother. You see, prideful people hate God's mercy. Look down in verses, uh, chapter 15, verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called to one of the servants and asked, what, what, what does these things mean? In verse 27, and he said to them, to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. The father's like, listen, join in me with my joy for your lost son, brother. Join in me. Help and praise that your brother has been found. The father is pleading with him. But the older brother digs his heels down in verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, if you've been around listening to the Bible, one of the things you're going to hear is like, be really careful about inserting more meaning into parables of the parables of Jesus than they're actually there. Totally agree with you on that. And I think what we really need to do is pay attention to the context, okay? So we can understand what Jesus is getting at. So with that said, have you ever met any son who perfectly kept his father's commands? You know, if, if I were to get my phone out and call my dad up and put him on speaker and say, hey, dad, did I always obey you? He would probably respond something like this. Well, you were a lot better than your older brothers. <laughs> but no, you didn't always obey me. I, I'm going to have to send that to my older brothers. Um, no, see, nobody perfectly keeps their father's or their parents' uh, rules or commands. And just like the rich young ruler who said, oh, I've kept all these commands, Jesus, the Pharisees in our context thought they kept God's commands to the greatest degree, to the very best. This pride, this arrogance made them blind to the beauty of God's mercy. Because, listen, this is really important. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is one to think about. Because ultimately, they really didn't think deep down they needed God's mercy all that much. Pride numbs us to the beauty of God's mercy. And this can cause us to be unmerciful towards others. And there is a reason why Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. See, a prideful heart often leads to dehumanizing others and other people. Look down in verse 30. 
The older brother says, but when this, this son of yours, no, he's not even calling him his brother, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, just interesting side note, tax collectors were devouring Israel, stealing and such. Sinners was a euphemism for uh, prostitutes. Jesus is like, listen, you Pharisees, you scribes, I'm talking about you. You killed the fatted calf for him. The older brother thought he needed no mercy, so he showed no mercy. Let me say that again. The older brother thought he needed no mercy, so he showed no mercy. And that's what's happened all around Jesus' ministry. He came to this world and he found many Jewish leaders who were laser focused on keeping the law and they completely lost sight of God. I mean, like, literally, he's standing right in front of them and they're not seeing him. And the reason they could not see Jesus as their Savior, as their God, is because of their prideful, unrepentant hearts. They resisted the Holy Spirit. And it is those who are on the fringes of society, the worst of worst, who are humbling themselves and being drawn by God's calling to Jesus. And God, overwhelmingly delighted in these sinners coming to him. And humble sinners are able to see God for who he is. And when we see God for who he is, we lunge into his compassionate, forgiving embrace. We find love and acceptance. And one other thing, well, a bunch of other things, but one other thing I want to point out. We find love and acceptance, but we also find the antidote against becoming the big brother. His mercy and grace towards us frees us, unites us with Christ, and it also renews us to show mercy and grace towards others. In the book of Romans, uh, we see basically uh, from uh, the inside, like the inside part, Jesus' love being talked about here. And imagine like if, if Luke 15 is Jesus saying, hey, here's my Camaro, uh, here's my love, this is what it looks like. Uh, Romans kind of goes underneath the hood and shows you how that Camaro works. Okay? We are explain Paul through the book of Romans is explaining how the gospel and how God pursues and God loves sinners and how we're all sinners. And at the end of kind of the explanation, he starts some application. And that starts in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And I just found it so interesting, a friend of mine pointed this out to me this week, what he is basing his appeal to live a godly life. Look down at verse 1 of chapter 12. Or look up. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. You're that prodigal son that's been welcomed back in. Prodigal daughter, welcome back in. By the mercies of God. He's saying, based on the fact that God loves you, that he shows mercy to you, that he has justified you, declared you righteous, that his spirit is going to hold on to you, he will, nothing can prevail against you, that he loved you from eternity past, based on these mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And if we could just go on in uh, Romans 12, there is a list of thing after thing after thing that Paul is saying, hey, now live out the reality of the gospel this way. In one particular way, and you can read this later, he says, live out the gospel by loving your enemies. Show mercies to those who are not showing mercy to you. Why? Because while we were still enemies with God, God was pursuing us. You see, when we sit and understand and accept and embrace and have dwell in our hearts the mercy God shows to us, it then bleeds out to mercy towards others. God overwhelmingly delights in saving humble sinners, and he is inviting all of us into this endeavor of showing mercy 
joyfully to others. So let's just close with just a few applications. There's you know, different people here, different walks of life, and I just want to kind of address a couple of them right here. If you are a Christian, but you feel God is very distant, like maybe I'm a prodigal son and I'm in a faraway country, I want to encourage you. Go to Psalms and read Psalms that talk about God being distant. You could start with Psalm 22, where it starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How have you forsaken me? How could you leave me? By the way, that's what Jesus said on the cross. See, God put those words in there to give us words to speak to him. And then bring other people into that struggle. Bring the body of Christ in. Walk through that. Listen, God is a faithful, good father. And he is bringing you through that season for your good, not for your your, um, ill. Maybe you're a wayward believer. Like, God's not just distant. I'm done with him. Look at the love and joy that comes out of a sinner, that comes out of God when a sinner comes home. Maybe you're a believer. You really don't fit into those first two options. Soak yourself in the reality of God's mercy and love towards you. Find key passages of scriptures that reveal that to you and dwell on that. And let that be the catalyst for change in your life. And lastly, maybe you're not a Christian. You're lost. And you're here, well, maybe you don't even know why you're here. Your friend drug you here, I don't know. Maybe you're like, I don't know, I know, I think, I'm not even sure Jesus lived. I don't even know if he rose from the dead. I don't know if this whole Christian thing is real. I'm not going to argue with you right now, but I will say this. Don't you wish it was real? Don't you wish that there is a loving God who acknowledges our sins and doesn't just condemn us, but draws us and pursues us and sends his son to die for us and gives us new life? Come to God in repentance of your stubbornness, of your pride, and God in his love will answer your questions in time. And for everybody, know this as we close. God is pursuing, God is affectionate, and he has concern as he delights in saving humble sinners. Let's pray. God, I do thank you that you are a God that has pursued all of us. Pursued me in my um, sin, pursued me in my arrogance, and you continue to pursue me and perfect me and make me more like your son, God. We thank you for that. God, we just ask that this reality uh, we would believe by faith and that it would seep out into our lives and that we would be like you, that we would be a pursuer, that we would have our affections towards the lost, that we would um, lovingly warn and preach the gospel and that you would be glorified in us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.